Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican, Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And we're back with another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be talking about the temple. Yes, we're going to conclude these four episodes we've done on eschatology, end times things. Um, which, you know, we planned this before all this stuff started in the Middle East. Correct. So this was not like, hey, look at that hot button issue. Let's do a couple episodes on it to really make our listenership rise. Um, because right now, the number one episode of listens that we have is Tabula Rasa. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm stunned to see that that has gone as high as it has. Yeah. It, as fast. Because it's not an old episode. It's new. It has as many as some of the first episodes that we've done. Yeah. Yeah. So that is Adam, by the way. His voice is uh, undergoing a change. He's, he's yes. in that stage of life where he's... Um, second puberty, I believe, is what <laughs> they call it. Um, nah, I'm, I'm suffering from a uh, little bit of a cold here. Fighting some sickness. Well, we appreciate you being here anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to conclude these particular topics that we've touched on today, talking about the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and um, how significant this is for Scripture. So first, let me say that very often in the New Testament, when it's talking about the end of the age, it's not a reference to the end of the world like the cosmic world, it's a reference to the end of the old covenant, which is an age. So the age is coming to a close. And the sign that Jesus predicts is the indicator that that age is ending is the destruction of the temple. And he emphasizes this in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. Luke 17 looks like it's more end of the world, if you want to use that phrase kind of prophecy if, if we're going to go into those distinctions. And then when we go into Paul's letters, the descriptions about the end and the wrath that's coming upon them at the last, and the, like in Thessalonians, it is about the destruction of the temple. In fact, almost the entire book of Revelation is about the destruction of the temple. It's hard for us to grasp how centralized or how central to New Testament preaching the destruction of the temple is. Jesus preaches the destruction of the temple. He cleanses the stone temple and then speaks mysteriously in John's gospel as he's destroying, as he's cleansing the temple, you know, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And it says that the apostles didn't know he was talking about his body until after the resurrection while the Pharisees are arguing with him. Hey, this thing's taken decades to build. You're going to do it in three days? And so, one of the reasons that this is such a foreign concept to many American Christians is because of false understanding of sola scriptura. Now, let me, and we're going to have to do another episode on this point, but let me just tease the idea for a moment. Let me just uh, uh, pull out a couple threads here real quick. We did two episodes on nuda scriptura last fall. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed in just kind of reading and, and listening to more thinkers and, and theological reflectors, if you, if such a word exists, is that um, sola scriptura, 
the phrase, has been so profoundly misunderstood for so long. And in some cases, some would argue that this is what happened at the Reformation. Although if you go back and listen to our podcasts, we, we tried to, to point out that that was not the case with mm -hmm. the magisterial reformers per se. But the contemporary evangelical claim that sola scriptura is only the Bible and nothing else. And then the Roman Catholic apologists who say, well, Protestants believe in sola scriptura, which means only the Bible and nothing else. What, the irony is that both the evangelicals and the Roman Catholics, and I say evangelical broadly speaking, they agree with each other over that term. And as Anglicans who are Catholic while protesting certain Roman doctrines, that's not how we understand sola scriptura, which goes into that discussion about sola scriptura and what we were calling nuda scriptura. So what's being put forward and has been for a while, but it's getting a lot more traction is the idea of prima scriptura, which is scripture first and scripture final. So scripture is the alpha and the omega, if you will, when it comes to the articulation of doctrine, but it's prima script scriptura in the sense that we know what scripture means within the living community of the church. And we talk about that all the time. And from what I'm seeing is that the phrase scripture, prima scriptura is doing a better job with contemporary, contemporary thinkers and, and reflectors that the reflectors is not a word. I'm not talking about the stuff that reflects cars on your bike, you know, the light of cars. Okay. <laughs> All right, Josh. That's, that's where my mind went, man. Yeah. So you're like ET flying through the sky, right? <laughs> um, the, the prima scriptura is, is realistically, I think probably what's going to end up becoming the default phrase for those of us who believe in the authority of Holy scripture as understood through the sacred tradition at the feet of the fathers. So scripture retains its, its elevation. It, it retains its, its primacy. But we, we confess truly that we know what it is because of the fathers of the church. And if we can trust the fathers of the church, as we do to tell us what the scripture is, we can also trust them to tell us what it means. So we'll go into that like a whole nother episode on, on prima scriptura. But I want to emphasize that point because uh, at this at this juncture, because most American Christians are ignorant of Josephus. Josephus's book, The Antiquities of the Jews or The Wars of the Jews, is where he describes in in significant detail the overthrow of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, even the collapse of the of of Israel itself as the Roman army under Vespasian at the beginning marches through the land, taking out city after city after city. And when you start to, you go back to, you read about Daniel and that the beast with the iron feet uh, um, that's mixed with clay and how it just stomps down everything in its way. I mean, there's, there's the Roman boots right away. There, there's this Roman army that's coming through Israel, crushing everything as it moves towards the city of Jerusalem. And then Vespasian gets recalled back to Rome and his son Titus becomes the commander of the army. Uh, the Roman army and they lay siege to Jerusalem and they, they Josephus gives us descriptions of the siege engines that Rome brings up against the city and they're, and they're throwing with their trebuchets, their catapults stones 
that are the size of some of the stones in Herod's temple. These things are weigh in the tons of weight, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And while they're not able to break through the city walls, those things rain down like hailstones into the city, causing such massive destruction that now when you go back and you read the book of Revelation and it talks about 100 pound hailstones falling from the sky and wreaking devastation upon the people of the land, upon the city, we, that's a description of, of the, the siege. Josephus also talks about the warring factions of the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Sadducees and this Zealot party and that Zealot party and how they're at war with each other in, in the temple. While they're under siege and cannibalism is kicked in, so mothers who have given birth to their babies are mm -hmm. cooking their babies and eating them. And then Josephus also describes how on the last day before the army rushes in, the Roman army rushes into the city to take it after basically a three and a half year siege, begins in the spring of AD 67 and the temple falls in AD 70, which is important because Jesus says, when you see the fig tree begin to put out its leaves, that's the springtime. So the Lord predicts the specificity even of season when this is going to take place. Um, but Josephus records that the armies, they all saw it. They saw in the clouds, the soldiers, the people on the ground, they saw in the clouds armies in the sky with shine, uh, light shining off their armor. And then the armies in the sky rushed into the city. And that's when the armies on the ground ran into the city um, to take it over. And, and in all of that, all of that process, that three-year period and, and a few years prior to it, there were people coming into the city. One was a, a guy by the name of uh, Jesus Ben. It's, it's not Gamaliel, but it's not, it's not Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's a different Jesus who's in the city preaching, saying, uh, woe, woe, woe to the great city. You know, he's, and, and then so when you read the Revelation and there's these angels and there's these messengers that are going through the land in the Revelation saying, whoa, 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 the great city has fallen. So much of what Josephus describes historically is present in the Revelation as prophecy and apocalypse. American Christians are ignorant of what Josephus wrote, and they're ignorant of it because they've been taught that if it's not in the Bible, it's not true. And since it's not in the Bible and therefore not true, you can't read it as something to help you understand the Bible. So not only has that been used to jettison the Deuterocanonical books, which is a, that's a travesty for every Bible-believing faithful Anglican who's committed to the Catholic Church because we have a second canon in the articles, the 39 articles. It just, the, the, the just says in the other books. So we have, you know, Anglicans who believe that those books are scripture, like, uh, like Pope Damasus and Jerome at the end of his life. And we have Anglicans who think they're not to be counted as scripture, like Jerome at the beginning of his life and like Athanasius the Great. But the point is, it's a second canon. Not only are those books rejected, all the history is rejected. And so all of the stuff from Josephus and Tacitus and the early fathers who describe the fall of the city of Jerusalem and then it's further total destruction in the Bar Kokhba revolt in roughly 133 to 134 AD miss so much of the New Testament's preaching and teaching and how it's been fulfilled. 
Jesus preaches against the temple. Stephen teaches against the temple. Paul preaches against the temple. And they're all martyred because of it. James the just, or James the less, who Paul calls the Lord's brother because he's one of our Lord's cousins, he is killed just before all of this stuff takes place. The siege really takes place in the city. And there, that's not in the pages of the New Testament, but it's in Josephus. Uh, Hegesippus is the one who gives us more accounts of, of, the, of the discussion about James's death and what took place. You know, he was at the top of the temple, they threw him down and they hit him with the club, that kind of thing. But Josephus mentions that it's when the high priest Ananus does this as a power grab that he provokes so many Jews in the city and the Jews reach out to the, the Roman governor who's out of town who dispatches people and, and then the zealots end up killing that high priest. There's so much that we miss because we're ignorant of these very, very true and very, very reliable extra biblical documents that we take the scripture then in a nuda sola scriptura way, if you will, we wrench it from history and we import it directly into our day. And so when we read Matthew 24, when we read the prophet Ezekiel, when we read Daniel, when we read uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, when we read the revelation, we take almost the whole of it and make it about future fulfillment. When if all we've got to do is just begin, do a 30 minute read of any of the texts I've just mentioned, and you will suddenly discover how much of the New Testament was literally immediately fulfilled within the generation that would not pass away, whom Jesus said would see those things come to pass. Yeah, and I think not only does it impact how we, we look at our current events, because we're not trying to cast, I would say erroneously, these things onto our present times and, our, and the uh, present political and global events. Um, it, it, it even in, changes how we um, interpret the text. Well, that's the bigger issue, right? It, it really is. Interpreting the text? I yeah. mean, even, uh, uh, for example, like I'm, I'm going through a class on the Gospel of John. If you look at this, like you're, the perspective that you're talking about, it, even, it changes very much so how you read uh, the Gospel of John, like how you read the Gospel. I mean, that's, that's pretty important. Yeah. Well, let's, let's look at the text of Scripture, and I'll give uh, a few examples from Scripture as we continue this discussion, all right? And the first one I'm going to have us check out is Matthew 22, verse 7. Now, the Lord has just told a parable about who is able to enter into the kingdom of God. All right? So if you start there, it's it, Jesus answered in verse 1 and spoke to them by parables. So he goes on, he, talk, he gives another parable. And in this case, it's about a king who has a marriage prepared for his son and wants people to come to the dinner and participate in this marriage feast. Clear reference to the, the sacrament of the Eucharist. Okay, that's, that's happening there. But look at verse 7. But when the king heard about it, how the servants had been spitefully treated and killed. Uh, the, the, the people he sent to gather messengers. When the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. So we see here in Matthew 22 that in verse 7, 
the Lord says that that city will be destroyed. It's going to be burned up. Now, remember how the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read together so that they can be interpreted the correct way. Yeah. What is the judgment in Leviticus, in the law of Moses, against a priest's daughter who becomes licentious? Man, that's a really specific question, and I'm thinking, cut up and center into all twelve tribes. But I think that's no, no, the no, wrong that's thing. the Book of Judges. That's yeah, Judges. <laughs> Burned with fire. Mm. And so, when you go back and you look at Leviticus and you look at Deuteronomy and the curses that are set upon the people, upon the city, and what they're doing and not doing. Uh, in the preaching of Jesus, when you look at the parables where he's talking about the kingdom being taken away and given to the Gentiles and what happens to the city that does not, uh, that has not listened to him, often the judgments are coming straight from the book of Moses, the books of the books of Moses. So, for example, here in Deuteronomy 32, this is the song of Moses. It says this. And this is when the people go into sin, you know, they go into idolatry and do what they ought not to do. Uh, verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest Hades. It shall consume the land with its produce and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will gather, gather evils on them and I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by birds and incurable disease. I will also send against them the teeth of wild animals with the anger of things crawling on the earth. The sword shall make them childless outside. The Romans, when they sieged Jerusalem, used up all of the wood outside of the city for two purposes. One, because they were using it for firewood. And the other is because they crucified so many men, they ran out of trees. That's how much they decimated the area outside of the city. Jesus again predicts this in the Gospel of Luke as he's carrying his cross to be crucified. And he says, daughters of, of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for your children or your sons. If they do this when the wood is green, what about when it is dry? So again, he's predicting the destruction of the city. Uh, and I could go on and read through, the, through uh, Deuteronomy and go back and pull out some more references from Leviticus. The Lord is taking the promises of God's justice and he's appropriating those promises of justice upon Jerusalem and upon the old covenant because they did not say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They did not receive him. And now that judgment's coming upon the city. So that's in Matthew 22, right? Now this is important thematically because it's after he's talking about this that the Pharisees start to argue with him. They, they're getting into it with him like this isn't right. So he goes on and does some more teaching. And then finally in 23, and it, when I say finally, each of these stories are connected together like a link in a chain. They're building one upon the next. So when you come into 23 and he starts rebuking the Pharisees, that takes him right into his teaching at, on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where he's talking about the overthrow of the temple. It's revealed even in the apostles' discussion, you know, because they're saying, don't you see all these buildings? That's in 24.2. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone shall be left upon another. Everything gets thrown down. 
So even the wailing wall right now that's in Jerusalem is not part of the temple, properly speaking. It's a retaining wall that's still in place. So he describes in significant detail the overthrow of the temple. I mean, okay, just just a caveat, okay? I spent some time a couple years ago <clears throat> on one of my YouTube binges, right? My YouTube wormhole. And I just was looking up the destruction of Jerusalem. Dude, it is probably one of the most saddest things I've ever seen in my entire life. It's dude, it's devastating. Like they decimate the entire city. Like there was no way that anybody in that city survived. I mean, I, I, I I'm saying that just no, yeah, no, I got you. Like, right, it was, it was crazy. And, and that's then what you the think Lord's about talking Jesus, about. Like when he's sitting there and he's crying, he's weeping over Jerusalem. And it's you know, I, that's what I thought about when I thought about the destruction of. Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. And stuff. The Lord's weeping over the city of Jerusalem is an illusion. It's a remnant. It, it recalls Jeremiah weeping over the city, recalls the book of Lamentations, and recalls Elisha weeping over um, uh, the man from Syria, the king from Syria, who will destroy Naaman? Israel. No, that's not, not Naaman. Sorry. Uh, but it, it's, it's recalling all of these these prophetic insights into the destruction that's coming and how they begin to weep. I mean, there's a reason when Jesus asks the apostles, who do people say that I am? They respond. Some say Jeremiah because Jeremiah for a couple of reasons was the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah was uh, seen in a vision by uh, Judas Maccabeus in second Maccabees where Jeremiah gave Judas a sword to go dispel and fight back against the invaders. So there's this, there was this belief about that. But the Lord is indeed weeping over the city because he, he has wanted to save them. They have not received what he has offered them. And so he's given them over to their choice. And their choice is destruction. And someone will invariably say, well, they didn't, they didn't choose that, like you're saying, with the, the, the terrible nature of it. They, did, they didn't choose that. that. That's true. They didn't choose that but they chose the way that was outside of what Christ had for them. And so when you choose something outside of the plan of God, outside of the mind of God, even though you think it's better, you will reap the effect. You will harvest the effect of that decision. And so you can say in a very clear way, that was the choice. It's like the, the choice between heaven and hell at C.S. Lewis, that hell is locked from the inside. That's what's happening. Christ has come to save them but they didn't repent. They wouldn't do the good that they knew they were supposed to do. So we can see just how emphatic the New Testament is about the destruction of the temple. That goes into many, many contemporary belief systems about how the end of the world will happen and what it will look like and what will take place. So that the fact that there is a, a national Israel, a state of Israel now, and there is the desire for the, the creation of a two-state solution the, uh, between Israel and Palestine on the parts of some people. Um, there are many Christians who are looking for a seven-year tribulation period. They're looking for the rebuilding of the temple. They're looking for the resuming of temple sacrifices and, and, and Levitical priesthood. And the number of Christians who are looking for that because they believe it's a good thing speaks to just how much, um, how ignorant the church has become about discipleship and about the preaching of the early church 
and about the process of, of Christ moving things into the new covenant in a full and a comprehensive way. And we could spend more time talking about the geopolitical side of this, but the bigger issue is when we go back to the text of scripture and we say, that's not fulfilled yet. That must be in the future. That starts to distort a great many things. And if we go with the near and far dilemma, not dilemma, uh, perspective, uh, interpretive method that we were talking about, I think last week and the week before, and let's assume for a moment that there will be another temple that is built in Jerusalem next to the Dome of the Rock. It's not going to be Jesus's temple. In fact, last week there was news coming out that um, apparently there's someone that in, in Israel that they're saying is the Messiah who has a stronger claim to being the Messiah than Jesus of Nazareth, but they won't reveal his name yet. And the number of Christians who probably would be upset about that side would very much support the idea of rebuilding a temple. But Jesus did not support the rebuilding of a temple. He is the temple. Mm -hmm. The New Testament, the New Covenant and the Old Covenant are two different covenants. And there, God does not have two different covenants at work in the earth right now for redemption. He has the one, and that is the veil of his son's body that was torn upon the cross. Not a literal curtain inside of a stone temple. So one of the things to think about in all these discussions about the, the end of the world and end times events and scenarios is to go back and reread the New Testament and the old for that matter, and start thinking about how much of the texts directly address the temple in Jerusalem, how it's overthrown, and how it was replaced by Jesus the night before his passion when he instituted the Last Supper. When he institutes the Eucharist at the Last Supper, that is now the New Testament sacrifice that's fulfilling everything that the temple pointed towards. And anything that seeks to undermine and dismantle the Eucharistic presence, the Eucharistic sacrifice of Christ once for all upon the cross, eternally present in heaven, is principally a false spirit that the New Testament writers are dealing with. A lot of the uh, proper YouTube videos out there, there has been a, even non-Christian, it's been really interesting. I'm not exactly a member of the, the proper community, but... A lot of my uh, Second Amendment hobbies overlap, if, if you know what I mean. Not to be, you know, offensive to anyone who's, you know, anti-2A, whatever. Um, but I found it really interesting, this entire conflict and what it has like, sprung up in others. And to me, looking at a, a proper interpretation of these texts is, is solidifying it. It um, takes away almost like the sway of current events. Um, so like you, like this is just one instance, but every single time there's violence in, in Palestine or anywhere in that whole region of the world, we, we start looking back to these things and it's almost like this, this swaying, um, but a, a proper interpretation anchors our hope. Right. And what is correct. It's not in how much we can store. I, I believe you you talked about this actually before the, the, the conflict even kicked off when we're talking about the Antichrist and you're talking about, okay, go ahead and prep your food, get in physical shape. But if, if your hope is in anything other than Jesus, right. 
like you're you're missing the point. Yeah, yeah. And that and that I think that goes even more so if you look at this and what Jesus fulfilled and what Jesus was against. It, it makes sense, um, especially in light of this these these texts that we're looking at. Our our hope isn't in a temple. It's not in another temple they're going to build. Our hope is in Jesus because he perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly fulfilled the system and and gave us something even greater. He did. He did. And I think that's what's got to be driven home is that the New Testament, the new covenant is superior. Mm-hmm. It is superior to the old. And a lot of Christians read the old covenant as if the old covenant was superior to the new. We still read it that way. Mm-hmm. The uh, fire coming down on top of Mount Carmel with Elijah is read as something superior than the Eucharist. Then you've not learned to read the scripture yet. The prophets in the Old Testament are superior to the New Testament because the New Testament priesthood, well, that's given to all the church. There aren't really any New Testament priests. Now you haven't learned how to read the covenants yet. You don't know how to read the relationship between the two testaments. So, but keeping on this theme of the destruction of the temple, Revelation 17 and 18 goes into this prolonged uh, text about prophecy about the overthrow of the great harlot and the beast with emphasis on the great harlot called Babylon, mystery Babylon. And as with the revelation specifically, there are multiple things, not, not uh, opposing things, but there are multiple things behind each image. So for example, revelation 12, clearly Mary, the Theotokos, the blessed virgin is the mother of Jesus. We know that from the history of scripture. We know that from the gospels. And Mary gives birth to Jesus, and Herod immediately tries to kill Jesus. So, in Revelation 12, the woman gives birth to the male child, and the dragon tries to kill the child. Right? So, there's that clear picture. Also, in the text of the Revelation, the woman isn't only... It's, she, that, that imagery, uh, the visionary woman, is not just Mary, but she's also the church. Because she has other offspring uh, who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. And she is carried away into the wilderness and protected from the dragon. Okay. Now, I use as an example to say both of those statements that this, this is Mary, this is the church. Those two things are complementary pictures and they're both true of the vision. And you, get, you get a few things like this in the Revelation. Okay. When you get to chapter 17... Who is the harlot? Well, there's a clear reference back to Jezebel and Thyatira in chapter 3, when the Lord Jesus brings up the church of Thyatira. I believe it's chapter 3, and he, um, to, to the seven churches. And he's talking about, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, and she does this idolatry and, and, and sexual immorality, and she calls herself a prophetess, etc. Well, when you come into chapter 17, now you've got this woman who's dressed in all of the priestly clothing, the colors is what she's wearing. And she's wearing the, the fine linen. You know, she's arrayed in the gold and the scarlet adorned with uh, precious stones and, and purple and, and, and uh, the golden chalice, you know, the cup of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Well, who is this? This is Jerusalem immediately. And it also has parallels to Rome. The Roman Empire, the beast being more precisely the Roman Empire and the, the great harlot being Jerusalem, 
the the uh, the temple. You've got it. So you get multiple meanings with the singular picture, and they're not contradictory; they're complementary. So when you read the des- the description of this woman in chapter seventeen, verse six. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. We talked about perdition with the, the stuff on the Antichrist we did. Those who dwell on earth will marvel, and those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, or not Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus says it's for the sake of the elect that those days are cut short, because if possible, even they would be deceived. And so right here, we have John on the verge who is elect of being deceived, because he's marveling at this woman and what's going on. He's, he's, he's moved in a way that's uh, of a kind of adoration, which is why the angel rebukes him. Wait, hey, hold on, buddy. Why are you being moved by this? This shouldn't move you. This is wickedness, even though it's presenting itself as something great and glorious, because in the natural world, it is. Now, uh, come down to verse 15. Then he, that's the angel, said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So now he's saying that this thing is bigger than you. Okay. You go into chapter 18, verse one. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the great has fallen is fallen and has become the dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. You can take that back into the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah, when he describes the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, uses the same language. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. This is the city of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was an international city. The high priest's family had shipping uh, connections all across the empire. And so the wealth and the riches and the goods and the slaves, which is mentioned here in this chapter, that, that uh, the city dealt in human souls. That is um, later on in chapter 18. If you go down to verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense and fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, bodies and souls of men. Now take that description and go back and read the six seal judgments about the famine and the war and the plague that come, and de- death as a result. Now, this is the destruction of the city. It's the destruction of the temple. And she's the iconic em- emblem, um, emblem of this destruction. The beast eventually gets destroyed, but he gets destroyed in a different way. 
this is Babylon being destroyed. And this is, this is one of the great things interpretively with the revelation is that John doesn't say this is Jerusalem. He doesn't say this is Rome. He says, this is Babylon. So we go back now to the old Testament and we start reading all of the stuff about Babylon and what was spiritually true principally about Babylon from the tower of Babel onwards. We are now supposed to be importing those themes into his vision. And in his day, when this is being written, the target is the city of Jerusalem who has killed the martyrs of Jesus. Notice that. What is, what is, um, what does John say? What, what is this? A what, cup full of the martyrs of the blood of the martyrs. Right, right. In 17, six, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Right. What does Jesus say in Matthew 23 about this, about the Pharisees? And about the city of Jerusalem when he weeps. It's in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall, not, you, you shall see me no more. And to you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's weeping over them. Say, well, yeah, but that, that doesn't really say it's, it's the martyrs of Jesus. We'll go up a couple verses. The Lord says in verse 33, serpents, brood of vipers. This is where he's, he's John the Baptist's thunder is coming out of the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus here. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And all of those things come upon this generation with the destruction of the temple. Revelation 17 and 18. Check it out. Yeah, and I think the irony in all of this is that all the things that they would use to say we are receiving the blessing of obedience is that you look back to you know to, to Deuteronomy and that is blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. They're looking at those things, the, the prosperity, as a sign of their obedience. That Jesus mocks in, in all the gospels, Jesus mocks against that. He does. He does. And to that passage, to that parable we opened with in Matthew 22 about the city being burned with fire. He emphasizes it again here in Revelation 18, 8. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. So there again is the words of Jesus himself now being um, stated again by John the Revelator. This is... This is a clear, a clear description of the fall of the city and how catastrophic it is, which you mentioned Josh reading Josephus and his, you know, him describing just how terrible yeah, it was. Yeah, it was brutal. It was really brutal. Like I said, like if you have like six or seven hours of spare and you like watching stuff historically, you can watch it, but it'll make you really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me now, uh, Unless you guys have something else on this point, there's something else to pull out of Matthew 24 and then to start weaving that through from the Revelation. We clicking here? We on the yeah, same? Yeah, we're clicking on the, on the 
Matthew 24? How about you, Deep Throat Ridgeway? <laughs> Listen, I got a few cylinders misfiring. Okay, just checking, just checking. All right, so in Matthew 24, and this one, again, I encourage, uh, I'll say it like, like, like Matthew says, because I don't think Jesus said, let the reader understand. I think that's Matthew. Let the reader understand. Let the podcast hearer understand. We notice in Matthew 24 that Jesus says this in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And there will be great tribulation. Now, when the Roman armies laid siege to Jerusalem, while they were coming down through the land to lay siege, all of the Christians in the city fled into the mountains to a place called Pella. And the Christians survived. In Revelation 12, the woman, the church, is given two wings like a great eagle, and she's carried away into the wilderness where she is protected for a time, for 1,260 days, a time, times, and half a time, for three and a half years, which is how long the city was laid siege to by the Romans. So here is the description of what Jesus says, go quickly, i.e., wings are given to the woman to go to be protected because there's destruction coming because there's an abomination that makes desolate. Now, the word desolation, you see that in 2415. Turn back. Get my Bible pages not to stick together. That's been happening when I read scripture publicly. They keep my pages to stick together, and I've got to say sorry, guys. <laughs> but in Matthew 23, verse 38, we just read it, but we went, we went over it. I want to highlight the connection. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, the word desolate, desolation, wilderness, and waste in our English translations in the Greek all have the same Greek root. And so Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Then he prophesies the abomination that causes that desolation. And then when you come into, into back into the Revelation, and you start to read about waste, you're laid waste in 17 and 18. You'll see that phrase. It's the same word. It's the same thing, desolate. The desolation has come, meaning it's been raised to the ground. It's, it's that prophecy from Isaiah. You are now a haunt for jackals, a haunt for uh, uh, Lilith, the night demon. I mean, all of this stuff is being loosed upon the city. And I emphasize that because the same word is being tied together. But if your primary principal means of studying the scripture is just English, you don't see the word desolation used in certain passages in English. And so you don't see the connection of theme and emphasis. But the Greek word for desolation, desolate, waste, and wilderness is the same. It's the same root. Okay. So the Lord is saying that this, again, it's, it's a, uh, emphasizing again the same point, that the, the city is desolate. 
the city is laid waste because they did not acknowledge the Lord when he came. I mean, that even further exemplifies like beyond just like the, the curses that were put in through the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, like this whole, all this coming to its fullness, you know, in Christ, like obviously, you know, they rejected the Lord. They were taken away into captivity by the nations and it was spread throughout the world. And then in this case, you have like Jerusalem saying, okay, cool. We don't want anything to do with you. Okay, cool. And now the Lord's like, all right, well, this is, this is the result. Like you, these are the curses that will follow you. Yeah. Uh, go back to Revelation 18, Revelation 18 for a minute. And we, I, I read up to where it talks about, you know, them dealing in uh, all of all the goods and then the souls of men. Look at verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. I want you to key in on that phrase there, no more at all, or something comparable to it as we look at these next few verses. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Think about that phrase, weeping and wailing in the Gospels of Matthew about the outer darkness of the kingdom and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. The repetition of those attributes throughout the passages is not an accident. John does not want us to miss what he, who and what he's talking about. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as are trade as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like the great city? That question is a throwback to the other passages in the Revelation. Who is like the beast? So the, the, the koinonia, the fellowship, the bond between the beast and the woman that we see depicted in the early part of 17 has been building through the whole book. They threw dust on their heads, verse 19, and cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. There's the word again. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. I'm going to expand on that verse in the sermon I've got prepared for this coming Sunday. Dude, I, I, but that, that's communion of the saints right there. It is. Check that but out. It, but it's even more, right? Yeah. Um, remind me, and we'll come back to that in a second, and I'll highlight it, uh, what, what's happening in that verse. But then in verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants who were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery and all the nations were deceived. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to make a single convert and you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. 
and in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who were slain on earth. When Jesus talks about being prepared for those days in Matthew 25, who does he recall? Matthew 24. He says, as it was in the days of one of the prophets, Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the son of man. For in those days, men were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. The description here that shall not be found anymore is commerce and regular living. The desolation that is leveled against these, this temple system is so comprehensive, there will be no life that comes out of it at all anymore. It doesn't mean that there's not activity, that there's not human flesh yeah. that can generate something, but it's not going to be the place where God's covenantal work is at work. So is the implication that here in this passage, how like the temple and the, the way that it's being used by um, John, obviously beyond the near like use of it and the far uses talking about the temple system, like of the beast and stuff the whole like old that. covenant. It's the whole old covenant. He has fulfilled the whole old covenant. And now three and a half decades after his ascension is the literal destruction of the temple confirming his preaching, his resurrection, and all of the preaching and teaching of the apostles and the early church. And the early church has been suffering as martyrs all across the empire, because wherever Paul would go to preach the gospel, Luke points this out in Acts over and over and over again, it's the people from the temple. It's the Jews of the old covenant who, will follow, who are following him, not even those amongst the diaspora, but those from Jerusalem are following him around from city to city to get him killed. There's the waters that the woman and the beast are upon. That's the reference to the international nature of what's happening. But you mentioned the communion of the saints there in 1820. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles. Apostles, um, it, it should read, uh, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, and apostles, because holy apostles, holy there is not an adjective. Uh, you can, tra I mean, you can translate it that way, but uh, most commentators understand it to be rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, you apostles, you prophets, for God has avenged you on her. That, that's how the ESV reads. Yeah. And this um, has avenged you on her is in the Greek, literally judged your judgment against her. Meaning the saints the apostles and the prophets are the ones who have passed the judgment in heaven and God has confirmed their judgment by raining down destruction upon them. That's in 19.2. But I mentioned Deuteronomy a little while ago. So I'm going to show you how the texts of scripture, old and new covenants tie together. Flip back to Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to tap back. I'm on my Bible app right now. You're on your Bible app. Watch you're out like, now. You're flying right Watch now. Watch out. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Now see, I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none, nor is there any who can deliver from my hands. For I raise my hand to heaven, and I swear by my right hand. Now before I go on, what does Jesus say at the beginning of the revelation? I was dead. dead. And, and now, now I am alive and I have the keys, keys of death, death and, and life and hell, right? Hell, of death and Hades. 
a clear allusion back to this. Jesus is saying, I am he, and I am the one who died and was made alive, and I have the keys of death and hell. I open doors that no one can shut, and I shut doors that no one can open. So Jesus is clearly identifying himself as God when you go back to Deuteronomy 32. But let's keep going. Verse 40. For I raise my hand to heaven, and I swear by my right hand and say, as I live forever, for I wet my sword like lightning, and my hand takes hold on judgment, and I will render vengeance on my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh from the blood of the slain and the captives, from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Go back to Revelation 19. When he comes down out of heaven and the sword goes out and slays the armies of the Antichrist and the birds of the air come and feast upon their flesh. You, you can't escape the parallelism here, right? But here's where it gets even more. Are you ready for more, Josh? I want more. Okay, look at verse 43. What is that first line? Rejoice, rejoice. No, no, no. Look at it. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Rejoice with him. Or in this, uh, rejoice, O heavens. I got NKJV, rejoice, O Gentiles. You got the ESV. Mm, rejoice, rejoice, O heavens. Him. Yeah, O heavens. And, and what's, what's, what's the next phrase? And with his people. Uh, bow down to him, all gods, lowercase g. Yes. So the, that translation you've got, Josh, is based upon the Mas Masoretic text. What you're reading is coming from the Septuagint. Now, when John quotes in Revelation 18, 20, he's quoting Septuagint. Rejoice over her, O heaven, which is from the Greek edition of the, of the book of Deuteronomy. But John does something like Paul, Paul does all the time. They'll quote something from the Old Testament, and then they'll change something in the quotation, and they do it on purpose. For example, how many times does Paul go to quote uh, the Shema, but then he starts adding things into it mm -hmm. because it's about Jesus? Or when, for the ascension, when he quotes the Psalm that he ascended on high and he gave gifts to, uh, he ascended on high and received gifts from men is what the Psalm says. But Paul says he ascended on high and gave gifts to men. So it's a principle of continuity and discontinuity of what's similar and dissimilar. And whenever there's a dissimilarity, whenever it's not the same thing, the change is not because they don't know what it says. The change is because they're teaching us how to read the Old Testament in light of the incarnation. We talked about that last week. Moses says, rejoice, O heavens, and bow down before him, sons of God. Paul does not, all gods, not sons of God, all gods. John does not call them gods when he's quoting this, because he says, rejoice over her, O heavens, and who has taken the place of the gods? The saints, mm -hmm. the apostles, and the prophets. And it's the saints and the apostles and the prophets who have passed judgment upon the city of Jerusalem, and God is judging their judgment on the city. Well, that's kind of threadbare there, Daryl. I realize that is a direct quotation, and then that, that thing you're talking about, okay, I know. And you should never make such a bold statement that the saints in heaven are actively passing judgment about things on the earth from something that would be only that. So in Revelation 8, John says, 
verse 1, And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets, trumpets of judgment. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And each one of those trumpets that blows is a judgment against the city of Jerusalem. The saints, in their intercession, have passed judgment. And God has confirmed the decision of the saints. He has confirmed the decision of the heavenly court by sending the angels to judge the city because these saints, apostles, and prophets are the very people who have been slain and martyred and killed. So in this numbering of people that John, though he doesn't give any names, he gives the, 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 the classifications. The names would be Stephen, James the Just, Paul, Simon Peter, people who were specifically martyred on account of the faith have been in, in, in heaven interceding that God would act on their behalf and he's doing it. And so we can see how, again, how the New Testament and the Old Testament lock together. And so much of the New Testament is about the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, not because God delights in destruction, but because that system was impeding, was, was hampering the proclamation of the gospel and the celebration of the new covenant, killing its, killing its priests, killing its ministers, killing its holy ones. So it's about the destruction of the temple. And that's got to come back into our, our considerations about end time scenarios. Well, I mean, it, that even says something to the system that was established that Jesus came to, comes to establish and established through his church. Yes. That it was so significant that anything and everything, including that which he had, um, I guess, previously established, but is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But even those things, if they would come against his church, he will destroy them. The gates of hell shall not prevail. It's That's what he says in Matthew 16 in, in the book of Revelation. Where is the empowerment coming or the beasts, and where is the power? I mean, this, t this text of Scripture says clearly that that first beast rises from the abyss. He comes up out of the underworld. So this is where the prophetic and apocalyptic nature of the Revelation shines forward, is that it's looking at the things that are, that are making the headlines, if you will, and saying, here's the real animating spiritual power behind it. It's not heavenly. It's coming up from the underworld, and it's destructive. It's diabolic. It's wicked, and it's crushing the testimony of the gospel that Jesus Christ alone is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the new temple. He is the new covenant. The blood, his blood is that, that magnificent, wonderful thing. And the saints who are in him are already raised in glory, passing judgment through their intercession. They're already dashing the nations with a rod of iron. I mean, that, that theme you're talking about also echoes, I'm pretty sure this is the Apostle Paul who was martyred, obviously. But uh, what is it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities right. and powers. Right, right. Like, I mean, it's, 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 too, it's too easy in the occurrences of either 
what's going on right now and in different places in the world for people to get into this place to where like you make you make a human your enemy in such a way to where you hate that person or you you know you don't just hate the idea you hate that person uh you know so i mean obviously like but with you talking with revelation and what's being put forth it's like it's not just that idea it's like you have to see the thing that's behind it what's unseen right right and the only way to do that is in the revelation of christ himself he does it yeah he, he reveals it yeah. uh paul says uh he prays that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation start praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and don't be quickly moved quickly deceived quickly agitated quickly provoked by everything that happens around the world to believe that suddenly now this means literally that Christ is coming in, in, a, in a profound, descriptive way. We, we mentioned this with the rapture passage. Let's go there, and we're going to look at the rapture, rapture passage again. And I want to point out a couple things, then we'll conclude, and we'll pick up with a whole different series of discussions, Lord willing, next week. All right? So 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring us with him. God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In the New Testament, Christians don't die. They go to sleep. <clears throat> so when you, if you read in the New Testament, some, not the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, if you read that somebody went to sleep, they're, pro, they're Christian, they're believer. If you read that they died, they're not. Okay? Even the word cemetery comes from a Latin word that means to take a nap. The church is the one, or the, the Christians, the church is the, uh, is the one who invented the word cemetery for our burial grounds. We don't call it a necropolis, a city of the dead. We don't do that. We don't, we don't treat it as if these people are dead and gone. We literally call it the place of the nap because Christ will come and wake us up. Okay? So, for those who sleep in Jesus, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed the, precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Years ago, I heard a preacher say that this prophecy about Christ's return in the sky and catching up believers to him in the sky doesn't exist in the entire Old Testament. It was a revelation given to Paul exclusively. And um, I heard that years ago and I thought that's, I'm, I'm saying like 15, 20 years ago. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true. The, New Te the Old Testament doesn't have anything like this. Well, if you read that and miss what's happening in the text, that's true. Paul has an independent revelation that's revealed nowhere else in Scripture. But Paul is taking three different pictures. And this is really what's happening in the passage. He's taking three different pictures and he's tying them together. He's taking one, the use of the Caesar cult, the way that at the Perusia, the Perusia, the people of a city would go out and they would greet Caesar because he would, Caesar would send, uh, when he was visiting a city, you know, in a, in a victory parade, he would send those people ahead of him to get the city ready for his arrival. They'd bring out the, um, like the victory arch. They, they, they would set a bunch of stuff up. I, I won't go into too much detail, but th they would set a lot of stuff up so that as Caesar got nearer to the city, you know, and he would, he would enter in with victory. 
as he's drawing near to the city, everybody would leave the city, go out and meet him, and join him in the processional. They would join him in the parade back into the city, and they would all rejoice together, and he would come in as a victor. That's the first picture that Paul's using, that parousia. That's how that word was used by the Romans and the Greeks. Okay. Second thing he's picking up is Mount Sinai, because what is sounding when the Lord comes? But an archangel with the trumpet of God. And so at Sinai, what is sounding when God comes down to the top of the mountain? Is it a try? I thought it was thunder. Thunder and lightning yeah, and thunder trumpet and lightning. blasts. Yeah. And Stephen tells us in the book of Acts that the law was mediated by angels. Yeah. Okay. So when the Lord comes down now onto Mount Sinai, and there's the trumpet blasts. What else is over top of the mountain? Fire. A dark cloud. Yeah, there's fire and there's smoke, but there's a dark cloud. And it's out of that cloud. And what does God tell Moses from Sinai? Come up here. So Moses is called up. He's caught up into the cloud. And in that cloud are the angels. And that cloud is the trumpet blast. Here's the third picture that Paul is appealing to. The prophecy of Daniel. I saw one like the Son of Man moving along the clouds of heaven, and he was presented to the Ancient of Days. In the Ancient of Days, God the Father gives Jesus a kingdom that will never end. Who else is in the cloud with Jesus but the saints who are given a place to sit and to rule and to reign? That one is probably a little more difficult. Let me, let me go back like real quick. It's like transfiguration. That's what it seems like. Yeah, because that's part of it. We'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Let me, let me show you. He's talking about being caught up, and he was with Elijah and with... Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it, because who else is Moses. in the cloud? Yeah, who's on the cloud in the transfiguration? It was Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses are in the cloud, right? So in Deuteronomy, or in Exodus, when the Lord comes down on the cloud, who's in the cloud? I just, we just said it. It's not your question. The angels and... The angels. Yeah. So who are in the, who's in the cloud based upon, but you put those stories together, pull, pull a Paul for a moment. The angels and the saints. The angels and the saints are in the cloud. Mm. Um, Daniel seven. I'm sorry, Daniel nine. You see Daniel talking about the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. All right. And he, and how Daniel then wars against, uh, or he describes how the, the son of man will fight against uh, this beast in Daniel chapter seven. This is the prophecy about the clouds. Again, he says, uh, and this is after he's seen beasts. Okay. So he sees a series of beasts and, and, and John does the same thing. Beasts are always empires. He says, I looked, this is verse nine. And as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat his clothing was as white as snow, his hair, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Revelation 20, that whole thing. Okay? Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Revelation 19. The other beasts 
had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live on for a period of time. There's the destruction of the temple of the city of Jerusalem and the continuation of the nations of the earth after that act. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So there is the Son of Man who is receiving a kingdom. He's in that cloud. He's on that cloud. And in that cloud, uh, connected with that cloud, is the glory and the enthroned saints. So when Paul is dealing with, in 1 Thessalonians here, chapter 4, all of those images are being blended together because who's caught up to meet him in the clouds? The saints. And he's coming down from heaven. And this is one of the, the beautiful pictures between the old and the new covenants. In the old covenant, who was called up into the cloud to talk to the Lord and to fellowship with the angels and to see heaven? The prophets. Only Moses. Mm-hmm. The prophet. Only Moses. Because what do the people say when God starts to speak yeah, the words of the was, law to I, them? I was going to tell you that. They, they, got, they got scared. They got they scared. Said, we don't want this. We're we terrified. Don't want We're going to go hide in our tents. And now that we're, we are in Christ. Actually, no, that's not true. Then Moses told them, return to your tents. There you go. But we don't have Moses. We don't have the old covenant. We well, have, I guess, I Hebrews guess. Hebrews 12. Here's your next passage. Hebrews 12. We have not come to a mountain that can't be touched. Mm-hmm. We have come to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, to angels in festal array. And go back to the first verse. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. A great cloud of witnesses. And, when, and, and the writer of Hebrews, is, it's a juxtaposition. He says, throw off the sin that so easily entangles, like cords that are wrapped around you. He said, meaning you are, not, you, you are bound in cords of sin wrapped around you, but that's not really your state. Your state, by virtue of baptism, is that you are enfolded by a cloud that is filled with living saints and living angels. And the revelation says that their intercession passes judgment upon the earth. Their intercession is a rod that dashes the nations into pieces. And once we get that, now a bunch of other stuff in Christian history falls into place, like patron saints. Like why in the year 250, we have the first written prayer to the Theotokos asking for her intercession and protection. The church didn't make it up. They received it from John the Revelator, the last living apostle, who's tying together all of these other threads from Genesis now to the writing of the Revelation. If we bypass the destruction of the temple, we miss it all. And we we strive to make other things be fulfilled in the future that Jesus has already addressed and taken care of. I mean, it, that's easy to do because what you also just displayed and everything we just looked at in all those scripture references is the canonical reading of scripture. Yes. From Genesis to Revelation. Prima Scriptura. Yes. And how like that actually works in conjunction with everything. Um, and, I, and obviously people in America, specifically most people in America who are Christians or would call themselves Christians don't do that well. And I'm going to raise my hand and say, I'm probably part of that group too. Like I can't sit there and weave like all the stuff in scripture like that. Well, you know, not because I don't want to, but because 
when I grew up, it was very sola scriptura, you know. But I mean that 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 does a great job. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions that come from that. Maybe I'm positive <laughs> there are going to be a lot of questions that come from that. Um, so if you guys have any questions, uh, one day you can email me. But right now, <laughs> well, they can email right now. You. They can email you. you can now. email me. <laughs> but right now, if you want to email me, you got to email mm-hmm. me through Father Daryl. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you have positive thoughts or questions, you can email them to to Father Daryl. If you have any complaints or controversies, <laughs> I'll put his email in the show notes. There you go, Josh, in the show notes. <laughs> hey, man. I'm getting somewhere, right? No, I'm just playing. Uh, but yeah, so if you have any questions, just email Dar- Father Daryl at daryl at ascensionwv.org. Um, and that's all. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.